This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show on the Choose Yourself Network. Today on the James Altucher Show. In America, citizens have to think about their place in history. That your place in history is not determined for you by where you're born or who your parents are, um, but that you make your own place in history as an American. So if you write speeches, especially for a president, your goal is not to become an expert on every subject. Your goal is to become somebody who sort of could talk about it for five minutes. And if you learn too much, sometimes you lose sight of what's interesting. I want to also learn how to be a speechwriter out of this podcast. <laughs> okay, yeah, by the end of, by the end of our time together, uh, you, will be, you will be all set with your speechwriting license. Um, if you look at a lot of good speeches, they're either very specific personal details or big, meaningful values. One of my favorite speeches is the speech that Martin Luther King delivered the night before he was shot. He talks about surviving an assassination attempt. A woman, a deranged woman, stabbed him with a letter opener. It almost got to his heart. Doctors told him that if he had sneezed, he would have died. This got out in the press, and he got a letter from a nine-year-old white girl who said, I just wanted to let you know I'm glad you didn't sneeze. And then he goes on this long run where he prefaces everything with saying, I too am glad I didn't sneeze, because if I had sneezed, I wouldn't have been able to tell you all about a dream that I had. And so he's connecting this very, very meaningless moment, a sneeze, with these incredibly important national events. I am really happy about our brand new sponsor. I really am a big believer in what they do. Lulu. Lulu is more than just a free self-publishing company. It provides low-cost, high-quality, print-on-demand services that make it easy for you to tell your story. Plus, Lulu's print network makes your books available within days and deliverable around the world. No wonder Lulu is the world's largest indie bookstore. So, share your knowledge. Just go to Lulu, that's L-U-L-U dot com, and use the offer code JAMES20 for 20% off your purchases of any print book on the site or write your own book and get 20% off your first proof copy. I've got David Litt. I think you've had kind of my dream youth. We'll start from the end. You wrote for a young man named President Obama. You were a speechwriter for him. That's what this book is about. It's called Thanks, Obama. My Hopey, Changey White House Years by David Litt, a speechwriter's memoir. You have like two subtitles. I always have <laughs> subtitles. <laughs> I know. Well, th- I, it was important, I think, for my publisher. They were like, you need to include that you were a speechwriter because otherwise people are going to be like, why did you write this book? Well, right, it's not who like are your you? Secretary of State. Exactly. <laughs> Nobody's going to be like, oh, David Litt. There, there is a David Litt who created the King of Queens. So in as much as anybody would think, oh, David Litt, they'd be like, oh, that guy I saw from the credits from the King of Queens, who's not me, and also didn't write for Obama. Um, and so I will say to my publisher's credit, uh, one of the concerns, uh, I got a one-star review on Amazon, and the rating said, uh, this is a misleading book. Thanks, Obama, makes it seem like it's a collection of memes. Um, you know, the thanks, Obama memes, where you do something silly and say, thanks, Obama. Well, you're going to have to deal with a lot of one-star reviews. You're right. going to get one, <laughs> half the country is going to give you one-star reviews and half the country is going to give you 
three to five star reviews. That's right. And th- that's with any political book. That's why I thought I've gotten some of those that were like, Obama sucks, one star, fine. But the one that was like, this is a very disappointing meme collection, I, I particularly enjoyed that. So at least uh, you know I could I could say or think to myself, well, it has memoir on the cover, um, so it's nice. I can alternate which uh, which subtitle I use. So I've I've always I've always actually had this secret desire to be a speechwriter. <laughs> like I had another years ago, I had another political person. Uh, I won't mention his name now on the on the podcast, and I and I said literally. Uh, can I just write one speech for you? Yeah, I just wanted to try it as as an exercise because it it does seem like a difficult skill, and we'll get into it. What What did that person say? Uh, uh, sure, I'll put in a word for you. You want to be hired by the by the person because uh, this person was working for a political person. Oh, I and see. And he said, "You want to be hired as their like head speechwriter." Because that had been a job he had been offered. I see. And I'm like, no, no, I just want to write one speech. Yeah, that's usually, <laughs> I don't know. I feel like that's generally not how that works. Yeah, yeah, no, But that, it, it's happened. funny. Speech writing, I guess, not unlike comedy, is the kind of job that anybody's like, oh, I could, can I kibitz in that for like, you know, if I was talking about you, you with you about my experience as like a fighter pilot, you'd be like, just one, one flight. Can I go, uh, right. let me just take it for a spin. But it is true. It's one of the, I think, the appealing things about speech writing is that it's accessible, that there's no, I mean, I don't have any like particular, you know, license as a speechwriter that anyone else has, you know, doesn't have. But it's also, it is one of those things where, like, in the comedy world, you know, everybody who's been funny at a dinner party wants to tell a comedian how to do their job. Um, it is sort of similar in speechwriting. Anyone who's like yelled at the TV when the president's spoken is like, oh, I could do that. Well, um, and just to be clear, you're you're mentioning. I, I don't want to. I don't want to make people think that this comedy. Um, Thing is out of context because then make you maybe they'll think oh to be a speechwriter you have to are all the speeches <laughs> jokes <laughs> we were just to be clear we were talking about comedy right beforehand because you, as a fifteen year old you used to be uh, used to do stand up at a comedy club that uh, I now perform at stand up New York on the Upper West Side so that was just an odd little coincidence we had never met before or anything yeah I, well and I guess the weird thing looking back on it was that I was like oh yeah that was sixteen years ago so. Like more time has passed between now and then than between like my birth and when I did stand up at uh at stand up New York. But yeah, I used to go on Tuesdays and Wednesdays, and you know the, like bringer shows. So yeah. you know I'd, I'd rope all of my friends in like ninth or tenth grade. And <laughs> they'd all pay twenty bucks, and we'd sit. You know, no one could drink, and we'd sit there, and I'd do my five minutes that they had seen. You know, eight times by that point, but they were very nice about it. And then we'd go. I don't know, like walk through the park at night or whatever it was that we did because we weren't really that rebellious. But that was like <laughs> going through Central Park at night was a that was a big deal. So just like the, we were talking about all the different skills involved with comedy before the podcast started. So skipping that for a second, would you say one thing that I pointed out is that there's a lot more lot, lot, and and as you just started pointing, there's a lot more skills involved in something like comedy than people realize. It's not like just being funny. Would you say for speech writing, there's just as many or more? I mean, you were you were at the the peak. You were the king of the hill. You're writing for the president of the United States, so your speeches were going to be widely read. As you saw, it, every word was going to be pieced apart by every go- country uh, and government around the world. So, would you say at that level, are there just as many skills and nuances to learn as any other difficult skill, like say? Flying a fighter jet. Well, I've never flown a fighter jet, but I think that the difference between the the stand up comedy 
uh, analogy and and speech writing, I, there is a difference between being like the person on stage, you know, and and that have and having it all be on you. So one of the things I write about in the book because I wasn't really the the king of the hill, even in the speechwriting sense. I started as kind of the lowest level speechwriter at the White House. And by the time I left, I was kind of on the junior level of the senior staff, which meant I I still ran everything by my boss, the chief speechwriter, but had been there for a little longer. Um, for me, it is definitely true that the things about writing speeches for a president that are most challenging are not the things you would think. So lots of people uh, who are great speechwriters sometimes wouldn't do as well in the White House because there's all these competing pressures. You mentioned one of them, the fact that there's an industry of people whose job it is to pick your words or the president's words apart to take them out of context. So sometimes you know, if you have a writer who really is great at writing big, grand, glowing sentences can't check them to make sure that they're even taken out of context, not going to say something other than what you meant. Um, that might be a skill that makes it harder to be a speechwriter for a president than for somebody else. Mm. Um, I, I will say, I mean, the speechwriting for in the White House, at least in the Obama White House, like a lot of dream jobs, the number of people who were more than capable of doing it uh, versus the number of spots available was pretty skewed. So, you know, I, I tried to make it clear that I... I Loved writing speeches for President Obama. I think I was very lucky, um, but it was not, you know, a, a matter of um, only these eight people could do this job. It was really a matter of, you know, there's a few dozen, maybe a hundred speechwriters in Washington who have that kind of talent, and then you hope you get lucky and and get a get a shot. And well, I, did. I, I like um, like you, you could talk out about a bunch of different nuances. Um, I kind of bookmarked it a couple places. Um, so in one in one speech you wrote uh your your boss at the time kind of rewrote and you were astonished by the amounts of rewrites and you specifically say the way he connected uh, America's stories and America's story self-interest and the national interest in a way you had not. So maybe so that just that strikes me as a particular skill and nuance that a presidential speechwriter and even a a lower political figure speechwriter needs to have. So what's what what's that skill? Well, and, and then I kind of want to get into how you got this career and great sure. job and and so on. So but I want to also learn how to be a speechwriter out of this. Podcast. <laughs> okay, yeah. By the end of by the end of our time together, uh, you will be you'll be all set with your speechwriting license. Um, I think that the thing you were talking about. I, I wrote a speech. This was about infrastructure finance, and I made the mistake of learning a little too much about it without putting it in context. So. If you write speeches, especially for a president, your goal is not to become an expert on every subject. You work with experts on every subject. Your goal is to become somebody who sort of could talk about it for five minutes. And if you learn too much, sometimes you lose sight of what's interesting. Um, one way to, to think about it is, I forget um, who coined the phrase, but there's this concept of uh, ladders of meaning. So uh, at the very bottom of the ladder is very basic details, and at the very top of the ladder is big values. Um, so, 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 so ladders of meaning. Is this? Uh, tell me what you mean. Like, where did that come from? I actually don't remember. A, a former boss of mine, uh, Vinka Lafleur, used to talk about it because she would say, if you look at a lot of good speeches, everything exists on either the lowest or the highest rungs. They're either very specific personal details or big, meaningful values. So, I mean, one of my favorite speeches is the speech that Martin Luther King delivered the night before he was shot. And he talks about um, surviving an assassination attempt where a woman, a deranged woman, um, stabbed him with a letter opener. 
And he says, you know, it almost got to his heart and doctors told him that if he had sneezed, he would have died. And he got, a, and this got out in the press and he got a letter from, I think it was a, a nine-year-old white girl who said, I'm glad, you, I just wanted to let you know, I'm glad you didn't sneeze. And then he goes on this long run where he's talking about all the progress that the civil rights movement has made since that time. But he, he prefaces everything with saying, I too am glad I didn't sneeze because if I hadn't sneezed, or if I had sneezed, I wouldn't have seen. And then he describes these big civil rights victories or he says, you know, if I had sneezed, I wouldn't have been able to tell you all about a dream that I had. And so he's connecting this very, very meaningless moment, a sneeze, with this incredible, these incredibly important national events. And so on a, you know, there's a speech about infrastructure finance that I was writing about. It's not going to be like well, well, that. Well, well uh, break, break that yeah. one down a little bit, like to, to connect that to this ladders of meaning. So in other words, he's talking about either the lowest rung, these, these very mundane everyday things, sneezing. But, but, but also that sneezing is related to a super high stakes thing. Exactly. Which is his, uh, he lives. Right. So, so, so do you connect those kind of basic details to something high stakes? Right. So I it, and so it's not just high stakes, but that notion of the sort of mundane parts of our existence with the much more kind of big picture spiritual parts of our existence or the values that we care about. So he's connecting the sneeze, which is him saying, you know, it, I'm glad I lived, but he's go he goes even more mundane than that. He finds a way to make it even more sound, even more trivial, and we all so, know what so he's talking I see. about. So, but but that itself seems like an important technique, like how you connect. He, he doesn't just say, "I'm glad I lived." He doesn't just say, "I'm glad I'm alive." Right. He connects life to sneezing. So, why is that important? Well, that's a good question. I because one of the things I will say is that as a speechwriter, I almost never spent time analyzing speeches in this way. Um, I, it's fun to do it right now. And so, but I, I can't say like my theory of it is, but um, my sort of off the cuff guess is that what one of the things that he's doing is taking uh, a concept, living, and turning it into something tangible, sneezing, right? And, that we do every day. Right, that we do every day that also there's a verb associated with it that's active, right? So, you know, you're living, I'm living while we record this podcast. It would be weird if we weren't. It's also a little funny. It's a little funny and it's a little surprising. Um, but I think the the beauty of it is finding that detail. So I think about um, in uh, President Obama's speeches, um, and I, I didn't write this one, but I remember, um, you know, you could say X number of small businesses have, uh, you know, opened since I became president, something like that. But, you know, he talked instead about a business owner kind of hanging that open for business sign on their door. That's not a huge difference in terms of what he's saying, but it's an image you can you can put mm. in your head, right? So th- we can imagine someone sneezing. You, we can imagine the moment that store owner hangs that sign out in front I see, and so what like, that looks like. Like opening a business, and I'm I'm sorry if I interrupt. No, uh, please. Uh, opening a business is like this abstract term. It's almost like a statistical, like what's the business statistics of last year? As opposed to like, we can all picture almost that uh, 1920s, you know, oh, I'm going to put my sign up with the calligraphy on it and it's on the door. Exactly. And so we feel this visceral American dream feel from that that visual imagery. Right, you can, imagery I think is exactly right. You have an image in your head. Um, I think one thing, and I, I say this in the book, that if I learned from writing for a long time, it's that people hate words and love pictures. And so if you can't mm. give them pictures, the best you can do is kind of give them words that create pictures. And so I think that um, or I create so that image uh, of this man sneezing, and obviously it's a 
connected to, you know, it's not just a sneeze, but it, it, it that you can picture it. And then you go to these things you can't picture, but still matter, right? This idea of uh, this, these incredibly important moments in American history and civil rights history um, that are harder to picture in that way because they're not tangible objects. They're not active verbs like a sneeze, you know, like sneezing is. But the ability to connect those two things. And speeches like the one I wrote, that the, the draft I wrote, that got rewritten, and, and deservedly so, are speeches that tend to live in the middle. So they're not about relatable details, and they're not about transcendent values. They're kind of stuck in the middle somewhere. In my case, it was sort of about like advances in dredging technology or uh, you know, the financing mechanisms and public-private <coughs> partnerships. So, so, so tell me what happened. So, so you wrote that speech. What did you do wrong, and what did he fix? So that's what I what I did wrong was um, essentially it was a speech that was had a lot of detail about something that ultimately didn't matter that much for the speech. In other words, the audience either knew already knew about infrastructure and didn't care, or you know they cared but they didn't need to hear it again. Or they didn't care, and, and they weren't going to care just because the president said it. Because it, infrastructure is like this abstract word too, like right. infrastructure. What does it even mean? So, so again, it seems like you have to. What would be like a way you would think about it now? Like, would you say, well, this bridge collapsed in Minnesota, and so and so is, you know, doesn't have a father. I wish she did, or I don't know. That's part. I mean, that that always trying to think about how to turn big sort of uh, policy words into actual things that we can relate to does matter. What's interesting is those things also tend to become cliches over time. So like, yeah. you'll hear a lot of politicians talk about crumbling roads and bridges, which is, or, you know, um, uh, or crumbling schools. And these are legitimate problems in America. But, and the first time someone said that, you could picture it in your head and it meant something. And now probably we've heard that so many times from politicians it's become shorthand and it no longer is an image now it's just kind of a concept again so it it you're always trying to update to to stay true to what you believed last week and the week before the week before but trying to update it so that there's enough surprise enough um what's the right word enough kind of uh newness to the phrase that it lets you create that image in your head so going back to this speech that's what my boss Cody did um, and also part of it was just making it simple and about the big picture. So, you know, the line I used that that he wrote in that speech that the president delivered was, you know, there's work that needs to be done. There are workers who are ready to do it. Um, that's just very straightforward. And it also is broad. It's about all of America. And that's a distinction between writing for presidents and writing for almost anyone else. If what I, was that distinction? I don't understand. So, for example, when I was writing for the senior staff at the White House, if somebody was giving a speech to, I'm just... Uh, making this up. If someone was giving a speech to a convention of plumbers, they could talk about plumbing and exclusively plumbing for the 20 minutes that they had, and that's fine because nobody who is in the non-plumbing community is going to be watching that speech. Maybe a few people, but not a lot. For the president, every speech is a speech about America. I mean, that's the way I put it in my book because the audience is not just the construction workers in Miami who are building this tunnel that that he was there to visit. It's also the people watching on TV. It's the national reporters who are trying to figure out what headline to write and how this event fits into everything else that's going on in the country, both politically and, and actually. And so that ends up being um, 
more challenging in some ways, but also more exciting in some ways because you get to be kind of at the top of that ladder of meaning more often. And again, this is not like how I thought about it at the time. At the time, I was like, well, shoot, I you know have a week to do this thing and how do I just get it done as quickly as I can, as well as I can. So one of the reasons I wrote the book in some ways was that it, uh, working at the White House, you can't really reflect on your experience. You don't have time. And I wanted to be able to go back and try to think through what had happened. So, so wait, so so with this one speech in particular that got rewritten, what's like a bad phrase that that you, you thought was good, but then he smashed it, and then how did he replace it? So I don't even remember the bad phrases were were bad because they were so unmemorable. I don't actually remember all of the um, like. I just remember that it was a lot of explanation. Right? It was imagine going to see a movie, and it's just a movie with tons of exposition in it. Right, so it so felt like of, that. Instead of under, like, instead of a movie about like how hyperdrive works, you get uh, Star Wars. <laughs> right. So yeah, exactly. Like, imagine if you know, right? Like Han and Chewie spent a solid twenty minutes explaining the, you know, like why their hyperdrive repairs, you know, were a success, um, when others have tried similar repairs and come up short. You know, that's not an interesting movie, and it's also not what the movie's about. Right. That's the other. Point is like this is a that's a it's a movie about characters it's a movie and now we're just going to talk about Star Wars for another thirty minutes but you know what I mean it's a movie where um, the point of the movie is not the intricacies of the hyperdrive the point is like what are these characters doing and what are what's their journey that they're on and so that's the the point that I was making about kind of America's story and the stories of Americans is um, thinking about how do each of us fit into this national story and the truth is. Detail is important for that, but not every detail is important for that. So, so let's kind of um, I, uh, just so I want to understand a little more. Let's say you're writing for a presidential candidate right now, and let's let's just forget about the current political environment because it's easy to kind of the, the America is so divided in half. Let's just take a, a general, a normal, a quote unquote normal election. Sure, because the next election probably won't be normal no, either. No, it will not. Maybe, maybe no other election ever again will yeah, be normal. Yeah, that's right. But but let's say you were making a kind of presidential style speech right now. What would you, what would you say? Or let's say you were Donald Trump and you were actually writing a speech about something. Uh, what what would you say? Well, th- this is the only thing. So I don't think you can take it out of the context of the speaker. Mm-hmm. Um, so in other words, mm-hmm. what Trump would say about the United States. I mean, what he is saying is very specific to Trump and the way that he sees the world. What Obama said about the United States and about his role as president was specific to the way he sees the world. So um, I think it is... So Okay, so do an Obama-style yeah. speech about some issue right now. Well, I don't know that it's... <laughs> I don't I'm know that it's... These, yeah, exactly. Just like, this is do, a homework assignment. Yeah, yeah, do, do it right do, now. Do a speech. You had a week to do it yeah, for Obama, Yeah, exactly. This is the podcast. reason we wrote, we like wrote them and, and worked with people, including the president. I think that's the... Um, one of the things that I think is important about speech writing is it's not that I could sort of sit down and say, all right, well, we'll just do an Obama speech about this because you do need to have a sense of what is it that the president thinks about this issue. Um, you can you can kind of guess, but I would be less good at guessing now than I was a year and a half ago because I'm not reading everything that he says and, and he doesn't speak as frequently as he did when he was president. Oh, okay, so let's go through process. So like, let's say it's affordable health care. Yeah. Um, obviously, you know how he feels about that. What would be the next step in your process? Yeah. Well, so th- th- this is a good way of thinking about it. So yeah, you're talking about healthcare. One of the things that we would be doing as a speechwriting team is thinking about how do we get this out of the Washington debate, right? What's really at stake here? Another way of thinking about it is like, why is this important to the audience? So for example, it could be important for a number of reasons. It could be important because 
uh, some people have pre-existing conditions and could see their health insurance taken away if the price of health care goes way up for people with those conditions. Um, another example, you know, you could have family members who are in that situation. You could be the kind of person who is totally healthy, but if you got in a car accident or you got sick or you lost your job, suddenly you're not able to get the care you need or you have to choose between do I foreclose on my house, do I go bankrupt, or do I pay pay my medical bills? So all these are extremely uh, um, emotional, and and you know, so you're, you're you're basically trying to touch the emotions first before you touch the intellectual rationalization. Yeah, I think the intellectual part of it matters, but it's not the reason that it, the the sort of central question of why are we talking about this and not something else is rarely answered purely in intellectual terms, right? And by the by the way, with healthcare, it can also be. Those are some extreme examples. It can also just be somebody who says, you know what, I don't want to be paying thousands of dollars more every single year for health insurance, especially when in other countries they manage to do this just fine and it doesn't cost people as much. So I want to spend that money on like vacation or I want to spend that money on, you know, sending my kid to college or any of the other things that you could spend that money that instead is going toward healthcare. It's like paying, it's almost like paying an extra tax just because we live in the American healthcare system, not in another country's healthcare system. Well, uh, I like this idea of the structure of the Martin Luther King speech where he he attaches this um, high-stakes story of his assassination attempt with a nine-year-old girl's letter and then bringing that all into like one word, sneezing, and then using sneezing, almost like triggering this, using that weird word, it's like a funny word, to trigger like a huge emotional response over every massive achievement in civil rights. And so did you ever find yourself kind of like taking, I mean, that's such a beautiful structure and I like the way you, you bring that speech up. Uh, did you ever find yourself kind of taking a structure like that and and successfully applying it to Obama? Um, I don't think it's as one-to-one. You know, it's not like saying, okay, well, this was a, a beautiful speech, so how do we do one of those for President Obama or anybody else. And you'd have to talk, I guess, to some of my colleagues. Maybe they thought about it differently. Um, you know, one thing I will say is a lot of the most kind of poetic speeches that President Obama delivered are not speeches that I wrote because they were, um, you know, maybe the sort of beginning of a state of the union or especially a speech after a tragedy or the speech that President Obama delivered in Selma. Um, you know, when uh, Martin Luther King was delivering that speech in Memphis, he was he was talking about a variety of things. It was not sort of a, what we would call a message event. I mean, it was a a big, weighty, very complicated address on uh, technically on the um, sanitation worker strike happening there, but more broadly on kind of everything that brought them to this moment. And you know, looking forward, I mean, that all that speech is also where he talks about uh, you know the. Things things where it almost sounds almost sounds prescient, like he knows what's going to happen. Obviously, I don't think he did, but you know, there's um, he talks about having been to the mountaintop, right? That's kind of it's kind of the I've been to the mountaintop speech, and that it, it is all, kind of looking back and forward. I feel we we've reached the limits of my understanding of that speech without having it in front of me because I don't remember it perfectly. Um, but still, but still, I like the again. You were able to describe the basic structure, and that was, that's the thing I want to. Yeah, so so I think that with if you look at um, some of President Obama's speeches that were I think particularly 
uh, important, and I say this as sort of an outsider here because I did not write them. That's fine. Um, you but know, you were, you were there, like you're you're the expert. You're, right, well, you wrote the book. You're you're in front of us. Yeah, exactly. I wrote the so. book. We'll go with that. <laughs> no, it is. It's funny because I'm like, am I really? And I'm like, I did write a book, so I guess I'm gonna. I guess I'll talk about it. No, look at for example the Selma, the speech he gave on the 50th anniversary of Selma, which um, I think is a, just a beautiful speech that Cody Keenan, my boss at the time, and President Obama worked on together, and. Um, and in that speech, it is he keeps coming back to this theme of what it means to be a patriot. And he doesn't address it directly, but he's always addressing it obliquely from different angles. And he's talking about the past, but weaving it into debates that we're having now. Um, so when he talks about the way that the marchers uh, at Selma were um, ridiculed or called communists or um, you know called enemies of you know anti-American or whatever, He's clearly not just talking about the marchers there. He's talking about this broader issue, and he's doing it in an artful way where he never says, this is what I'm talking about. But there's no there's no mistaking what he's talking about. What, what was the artful way? Well, in other words, so he's always talking about patriotism, but uh, the easy way to write a speech would be to say, I'm here to talk about patriotism. Webster's Dictionary defines patriotism as, I mean, that's kind of the stereotype of that style of speech, but you still will hear speeches where somebody sort of very clearly says, here's the message of the speech. I mean, we all sort of remember uh, George H.W. Bush having his, like, message, I care speech that he delivered um, and, you know, saying that out loud. And what was funny about that was that it was kind of like, this is supposed to be subtext. But a lot of speakers um, go straight to text because that gives you the least possibility of being misinterpreted. And also because it's simple. I mean, when you don't have 50 minutes, you have 15 minutes, you got to be very straightforward. But sometimes um, some of these speeches you look at, and I do think they were more um, uh, artful in that way, where you it, it didn't leave you wondering what was going on, but there was never that point where it said, this is the thesis of my speech. So with the someone, I don't yeah. know that speech. Um, did he say like, you know, so many years ago today, there was this, uh, there were the marchers in Selma, those were patriots, and then there's this event. Those yeah. were patriots. I think it was Those even more like- subtle than that. I, I, you know, my phone's charging over in the corner there, so I don't have it in front of me, and I can't look up the the language exactly. Um, and I don't feel excuses, excuses. I know, with right? You all the time. Yeah, all the time. Well, and I feel I, I will say I feel like um, you know where, for example, I'm very comfortable talking about the correspondence dinners with some authority because I worked on you know on the joke speeches, oh, we'll get which to we'll get to. But um, you know, for something like that, I do think that. Uh, I, I, you know, I think I'd have to look at it carefully again because I, I don't remember the process because I wasn't part of the process. Um, I think that if you look at that speech from from my recollection of it, it's it's he does sort of say here's what happened, but it's not so much the the he's doing something that um, also you can do with a joke where it's a puzzle, but you're letting the audience solve the puzzle, but they all agree on the solution. Does that make sense? Yeah. So it's like like you're you're letting people come to their own conclusions, but you're also steering them in a way where they're going to reach the conclusion that you hope they will reach. Which is that he describes a broad event. There was a problem, people marched. So that's the, and then and then the solution is these is this is the these are the patriots. That's some of it, but and I think also this this notion of when we go when we what are we doing here today? Going back to what we were talking about with every speech, why is this important? Why are we? What are we remembering when we remember, um, uh, you know, this sort of moment in civil rights history and American history fifty years ago? Um, why does it matter? 
And one of the reasons it matters, I think he was saying, is that we shouldn't remember this as just being something that, you know, they, people marched across a bridge and everybody said, oh, this is great, we love this. Um, it was very controversial and, and in some ways unpopular at the time. And mm. we should remember that in addition to remembering the sort of triumph of the fact that we now look back on it and say they were on the right side of history. It doesn't always feel that, it, do, it doesn't always, it isn't always that obvious at the time to everybody. Let's stop to take a quick break. We'll be right back. You're busy and your time is valuable. So you need to get things done quickly, efficiently, and at a competitive price. Choose Lulu. Lulu is more than just a free self-publishing company. They are also your business partner. Create product guides, manuals, and brand books on Lulu's easy-to-use platform. Lulu's low-cost, high-quality print-on-demand services allow you to buy the quantities you need and when you need them. Plus, Lulu's print network makes your books available within days and deliverable around the world. And better yet, it is a certified B corporation and offers the largest revenue splits in the industry. Share your knowledge and become an authority in your field by publishing with Lulu. Let your book be your new business card. So, tell your story. Just go to Lulu, L-U-L-U dot com and use the offer code JAMES20 for 20% off your purchase of any print book on the site or write your own and get 20% off your first proof copy. That's Lulu.com, offer code JAMES20. So in terms of this ladder of meaning, it's not necessarily, like on the ladder of meaning, uh, patriotism might be number two, that specific, uh, on the latter, that specific idea about civil rights might be number three, but number one might be the fact that uh, a true patriot or hero or American might be someone who is willing to take a stand for something deeply unpopular at the time. I think that might that's, be the top of the ladder of meaning. I think that's part of it, but I, I think that it's it's not so much the, it's not so much ranking, like this is the important thing, this is the second most important but more to say, um, on one hand, you're talking about specifics, right? You know, um, I, I know uh, in kind of retelling that story, the, the speech that Cody wrote includes John Lewis as a 26-year-old kind of bring, you know, getting his backpack with everything you need for a night in prison, um, right? So I, I remember that image of the backpack. And, and yeah, because then that's something again, like the sneeze that could be carried forward. Do you have your backpack? Well, right. So that's um, I, I don't think he did in that case, but yeah, for sure, that is like that idea of playing with something that is both real and metaphorical. Um, and and but the important thing is that my guess is that a day from now, when you think about our conversation, you probably won't remember most of what I've said, but you probably will remember a backpack. You'll remember that image, um, and you'll probably remember the concept of patriotism. And so, or you know, similarly, just the describing marchers, the top right? And the bottom, exactly. So you know, rather than um, saying, you know, the history of segregation is, and just and kind of going through it in a in a clinical way, which would be sort of in the middle, um, saying you know, making this about these big things and these small things, um, and I think if you can and, and interweaving and interweave, right? Connect always kind of bouncing between the two, um, and and showing the connections between the two. And I think that again, it's not. Um, 
I never sat down at my computer and said, all right, where's, you know, how's my ladder of meaning doing and, and where's, uh, you know, what are my details and what are my big values? But I do think there were, it, you try to get in that habit. And the other piece of it is um, that question of why does this matter? That that was a question I would ask. It's sort of like the president of the United States could be talking about anything today. Why is he talking about this? And it's one thing, I mean, you look at um, Trump, not to get too political, but the uh if you look at what he chooses to talk about, it seems fairly random, right? And it's one of the um, things that I think unsettles people about him is that he, I'm not sure that he knows the answer to the question of like, why am I talking about this today? So it's almost like you're saying Obama had maybe uh, an instinct for what his overall media message would be during a p- particular period in time. Like, I'm going to always make sure I'm going to stick to these points for for some time. I'd be go beyond consistent. that. I'd say he, one of the things I admire about him as a president is that he had a sense for what was, what deserved his limited attention because he only had so much time in the day, um, how to prioritize. Uh, so that not just what do we prioritize with the message, but also what do we prioritize with the actual things we're doing and how do we do both of those in a way that makes the most sense? Because if you're the president of the United States, you have so many things coming at you every day, and most of them are important. Even the distractions are important. Um, you know, I think like about what? so. F- I mean, you could think about what's going on right now in the world, right? I mean, so this week we're talking about Iran, North Korea, a variety of you know wildfires in California. Puerto Rico still doesn't have power, um, and what is President Trump doing? He's largely talking about the NFL. Um, and to some extent trying to make it so that people have a harder time buying health insurance on uh, the Obamacare markets. Um, I I would argue that that is probably not where he should be spending his time. Those are big issues. One is a large cultural issue. The other is a real important policy issue. But uh, with all the other stuff going on in the world, is this really what we want to be dealing with? I mean, he's tweeting about whether NBC should lose its license, not that they have a, a license exactly in the first place, but you know, that's what is occupying his attention in that moment. It's funny how he doesn't realize, um, and again, I, I don't mean to get political at all. I'm really interested in kind of the mechanics of, of speech writing, but there is this huge analogy, not analogy, but this connection. Nixon wanted to shut down the Washington Post. Right. And it, I don't understand, just a basic knowledge of history would connect the two events. Yeah, I, I think that we're, um, I, I would. I wish that Trump was sort of in a vacuum and kind of came out of nowhere. But I, I think this is largely the culmination of a strategy that began with Nixon. That um, you know, Nixon had the Southern strategy that basically said Democrats are becoming the party of civil rights, so we're going to start to win the Southern states with these kind of dog whistles that indicate, okay, we're uh, you know we're stand standing against the expansion of civil rights, and it worked. And I think the I mean, there's other things that have helped the Republican Party as well, but I think that was a not just a sort of accident of history. That was a strategy. And I think this is the culmination of that strategy where you have President Trump really speaking primarily to his base that wants to take us back pretty substantially, including like actual, you know, white supremacists and neo-Nazis. I didn't think that we would be talking about that these days, but we are. So I want to get back to speeches that from way before you were involved, but the ones that kind of inspired you. And I think I bookmarked them somewhere, but um, you referred to a speech uh, he gave in 2005 when he was kind of just getting started on the national scene. And 
you made a really interesting point about how he threw it back to the audience where somebody, he said, he mentioned how someone asked him, what makes you qualified to do anything? And um, well, I had it before, it's the Knox, could, it, the Knox College commencement he gave yes. in 2005. So a reporter, he tells the story about a reporter asking him, um, Senator Obama, what will, what will be your place in history? And, um, and go, going back to this idea of kind of detail and value, right? Um, here, do you mind if I yeah. grab, grab your copy here? Um, and so he says, uh, right, you know, it, it's interesting. So then he, he's talking about that, the reporter, you know, he says, I've not even taken a single vote. I have not introduced one bill, had not even sat down in my desk. And this very earnest reporter raises his hand and says, Senator Obama, what is your place in history? And talking about some of those details, to me, the, the fact that he, in that speech, includes, I've not even sat down in my desk. You know, that, again, going back to the, as concrete as you can make it, and then this big value question. And the, the combination is what makes it so strange. You know, I haven't even sat on my desk. What is your place in history? And he ends up, you know, sort of saying, I was, I did what you would do talking to the students, which is laugh out loud. Um, but then he turns the question around on his head and he asks the students, and that is the theme of his speech, what will be your place in history? And it's this idea that in America, citizens have to think about their place in history, that your place in history is not determined for you by where you're born or who your parents are, um, but that you make your own place in history as an American. So so it makes it, that that speech and that technique, um, and let's just call it a technique for a second, mm-hmm. of kind of reversing it the question's not for me, but it's for everybody. So let's say that's the technique. He's so, he, it reminds me of two things. One is, reminds me of his Nobel Prize acceptance speech where he basically said, okay, I'm, I'm paraphrasing of course, because I can't remember anything. Mm-hmm. But he basically says, this is not my prize, but a prize for uh, you know, you know, our future or what, we're, what we hope to do. So again, he throws it into a bigger scheme which is that this is for everybody to think about, not for me to think about, or not for me to to glory over. Uh, so it sort of is not quite self-deprecating, but uh, removes- uh, It's uh, not self-centered. Yeah, it's not self-centered, which which he, he makes it better and more accepting for everybody. And I think that's a technique he, he does throughout many of his speeches. But it also reminds me of another great speechwriter, maybe the best of all time, Ted Sorensen with President Kennedy. That was also a common technique and I'm sure Obama must have studied Kennedy's speeches. In fact, there was a lot of comparisons when Obama was elected between the two. But uh, uh, you know, the ask not what your uh, country will do for you, but what you will do for your country. So which uses a very specific kind of alliterative type of technique, plus this idea of throwing it back to, to everybody. Well, I think uh, some of it is speech writing, but some of it is also just sort of how do you orient yourself toward the world. So I, I think that President Obama really did think of this as, you know, obviously he ran for president. He thought he should be the president, but he also thought that the the change he was talking about is only going to happen, it is not going to happen just because of him. It's going to happen because of things we all do together. And that was a pretty common theme of everything that he was saying. So it's not just a rhetorical device. It's also reflective of who he really was as president and, and as a person and how he thought about these issues. So again, that, that's kind a good of, way to put it because I guess I'm viewing it the way I just said it. Uh, it's like I'm viewing it as a technique, and you bring it back to the fact that you're saying it's not just a technique. The technique's coming from who he is, right? That the message and the messenger both matter, and that they there needs to be if there's a disconnect between them, the audience would notice. If um, 
you know, is I don't, that true? Uh, I mean, not true every time, but I think generally speaking, that is pretty true. And the audience may not know what's happening, but generally, I find that people have a pretty good sense of this is this is right or like this is a little off. So you, as a writer, you go back through Obama's speeches, use understand the techniques he's using, but also understand how this connects to to who he is, and then you use that information to kind of as a backdrop when you're writing your speeches. That was some of it. I mean, I, w- I would say it's not even so much thinking about here's the techniques that he is using. Um, you I'm know, just so analytical. Like, I think yeah. about these things in that way. Well, and I think that is, um, it's kind of the difference between uh, doing the work and kind of thinking about the work. Do you know what I mean? That like, Yes, I, that's actually an, an important distinction and most people don't realize that. Yeah, and so uh, it's not to say that there isn't technique, but to say that it's kind of, it doesn't feel like that when in the moment, and also that you know, again, meaning that when you're doing it, you're much more immersed in nuances that can't possibly be described by analyzing it, and and pressures that don't apply when you're thinking about it, looking back. So, you know, for example, and and also um, just the the other things you don't think about in an office. So, you know, for example, working with um, all of my colleagues, including the chief speechwriters, who had just more familiarity with President Obama's voice. So. Some of it's just as simple as somebody saying he'll probably want to talk about this, 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 and this because for them it's now second nature, it's instinct. And me saying, okay, I'll write that. So you know, it's sometimes you don't have to do. You find shortcuts around having to do all the work from the beginning every time. Um, it would have been a lot harder if I had come to the White House with you know, and nobody there had been writing speeches for the president. But I was able to lean on work that my colleagues had done, and also on all the writing that President Obama had done. Um, the and and that's one of the things that I kind of wanted to get across in my book is this you know we think about the White House as this place with like six characters in it because that's the one we see on TV or in movies but the White House has a lot of people and many of them like me were not there making history every day I mean you we weren't were, like hanging out in the Oval Office going over every word no not at all I mean the I, yeah, of the I would, States. when I left I probably went into the Oval Office once a month once every three three weeks depending on the time period. Um, and you know, I was, it wasn't like I was walking in and being like, Oh, Mr. President, how you doing? Like, you know, he, he knew who I was, but he knew who a lot of people were. And I didn't, I, I wanted to write a book about that side of public service that you don't have to be the right hand man or woman to a president to contribute to your country. I mean, you certainly can be, and that's, you know, and those are important stories, but I think there's also worthwhile stories from all different parts of government and, and people at different stages in their careers. So I hope that like someone who's 22 and thinking about getting into politics feels like they could see themselves in my shoes where it might be harder to see yourself in Ted Sorensen's shoes sitting down and writing, you know, a, a classic inauguration for a president. Well, even though that's a fascinating story. Okay. So let's reel it back. Like you were, um, the, the other reason I'd say you had my, my, dream youth in some sense you were writing for the onion you know you were you you kind of came at the white house in a weird way like and you're you're essentially i would call you a humorist even this book has a very kind of humorist sort of style you're very uh self-deprecating um it's funny you uh uh for instance towards the end you talk about how uh at, at first you start complaining how the Air Force One seats only do a 45 degree decline, so you can't sleep on an eight hour trip. Uh, obviously, a very first world yes. <laughs> problem to complain about, and you make fun of that. So, 
again, writing for The Onion, which is maybe one of the funniest publications ever and, and currently out there. And um, and then now you write for Funny or Die. Uh, and Obama himself has a sense of humor. Like, I don't know if you ever saw him on uh, uh, Jerry Seinfeld's Comedians in Cars Getting yeah. Coffee. I think he was the best guest ever on that. Like, he was super funny. Yeah, he was really funny on that. I was surprised actually how funny he was. I mean, I wasn't because I had had seen him. I think that was probably the closest people got to seeing just like when people ask what was his sense of humor like as opposed to what was he like when he was editing jokes. That's probably as- Very dry. Yeah, very dry. But but authoritative. Right. I think right. that's right. Like he, like he was bossing Jerry Seinfeld around. Yeah, like he, he never forgot who was the president. You yeah. know what I mean? Like there's always a pretty clear sense of like, yeah, I'm the president here. And I, I think that's part of, and part of that's that he knew that no one else forgot it. You know, that he, uh, there's a sense of self-awareness to, to that, to that, um, you know, where he, he's making, uh, he, you know, he was joking around with Jerry Seinfeld, but also he's like in control of the situation. He's thinking through how it is perceived, even as he's, Doing it, which and is he, impressive. He, it's not easy to do that, right? And he's he's the only guest that was ever on that show that uh, did essentially take control of the show. Right. Well, he's the president of the United States. That's going to happen. But you know what? The president of the United States. We say that like, oh my god, that's the biggest person in the world. But like, the president of the United States lasts for eight years. Right. For a hundred years, people are going to be watching Seinfeld on TV. <laughs> so I, I guess that's that is. Uh, and then that sounds yeah. stupid. Like yeah. the president of the United States obviously is, a, is the most important person in the world while he's president. But still, it's not like no, it's not like Jerry Seinfeld's a nobody. And I will say, I mean, I I live, I grew up in apartment five A, uh, which is you know Jerry Seinfeld also <laughs> apartment five A. So I have uh, uh, you know a great deal of respect for all things Seinfeld. But I think that um, there was there there's no point when you're the president of the United States at least in my limited experience with it, as far as I can tell. Um, particularly, let's just say up until now, because we're living in a very different era. But there's no point where you're the president of the United States and someone in the room doesn't know it. And it cha- it it changes the dynamic. I talk about in um, overhearing President Obama say that that's why he really enjoyed hanging out with like little babies, you know, babies and really little kids, because they were the only people on earth who had no idea who he was. Mm-hmm. And he just, he didn't get, you know that that is a difference, right? Like Jerry Seinfeld could find a room somewhere where he could walk into that room and people would be like, "Oh, how are you, sir?" You know, but they wouldn't know who he is. Mm. Um, and President Obama certainly, while he's president, but still, I mean, that is never going to happen. And it's a it's a pretty strange. He and I remember he and Seinfeld talked about this, and I remember watching it and thinking it was pretty interesting because they talked about their different approaches toward being famous. You know that um, I think you get the sense at least watching that video, I got the sense that President Obama kind of missed elements of being anonymous and that Jerry Seinfeld was like, no, I love being famous. Like, this is great. <laughs> I remember him, Jerry Seinfeld said the same thing in his uh, Reddit AMA. You know, it was just like, yeah, being famous is great. What are you but, talking about? But, you know, there was an interesting thing. There was an interesting point where um, they're driving around the White House driveway and they couldn't pull out of the right. driveway. <laughs> and not even Obama had the authority to say... Right. To, I mean, maybe he did and he was pretending not to, but... Even he couldn't, because Seinfeld asked him, you can do this, can't you? And <laughs> Obama was like, no. And uh, they couldn't drive out of the driveway because the guards were just like, nope, no, sir, keep going around. This is a level, I mean, so first of all, yeah, I don't actually, uh, that was scripted, but. Uh, I didn't know that. <laughs> oh, yeah, no, that was, but but it was sort of playing on something somewhat real, right? Which is the Secret Service has their way of doing things. And, you know, you have to think the president could override Secret Service, but most of them don't. 
for a variety of reasons. Um, and I, that I don't know much more about that. That's a good question. I'm trying to think about like who I know. I don't know when I get home to DC, I'll I'll like have to call around and be like, do you want, do you know exactly how they, you know, how this whole process works? Because it is true that, um, you know, there's that sense. Uh, lots of presidents and and first families have talked about this that the White House is kind of a, a gilded cage in that way. That you know, on one hand, it's the most powerful. You, you work hard to get there, but on the other hand, you, you can't leave. And um, I don't know exactly how they de- decided. It's interesting to see the differences. I mean, the security situation now looks different than it was when I was there. But so. but obviously, like humor is an important part of the speech writing process because again, often people will remember the 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 jokes. Like they'll remember. Uh, uh, you know Obama's sharp kind of humor, a different kind of humor than other presidents. You know, I, I think we we can sort of look at all presidents and think of their humorous moments. You know, Reagan asking his surgeon when he got shot, "I hope you're a Republican." You know, these jokes sort of stand out in in entire administrations where many more important things were happening. And so, and you came from a humorous background, writing for the Onion. So, a you know. You express in the book your disenchantment with with the onion, but the onion was it, is an important uh, yeah. To, to thing. be fair, what I what I talk about is how I was disenchanted with the onion because it turns out I wasn't that good at writing headlines for them. So uh, it was it was maybe more me than the onion. I love the onion. And so talk about the connection between humor and your humor, and then writing these speeches. Well, writing jokes for a president is still joke writing for somebody else. So it is you know you're thinking about what is going to be funny when they say it. So, so like for instance, let's talk specifically about the correspondence yeah. standards where he was he was always known for making like funny speeches, right? And and again, and you were writing those. Yeah, well, so I, the way we would do that, most speeches were not written in a room. You know, it was like one person holding the pen, sending it maybe to the chief speechwriter, and then to the president, and that's it. Um, the correspondence centers we would was closer to a writer's room, so I would sit down and write jokes, but I'd also be collecting jokes from former speechwriters who were now you know on the outside, but sent stuff in every spring or comedy write professional comedy writers who we knew from, you know, cause they're big names in the comedy world or like people I went to college with, but now they have a TV writing gig and I'm like, Hey, want to write some jokes for the president. And so a mix of those things. And, um, and so we would get hundreds of jokes, like 600 jokes or something like that in, and then cut that to about 40. And that's what we would bring to the president. So it was, um, just a different kind of process than we would use for a more serious speech. You know, you wouldn't have 40 or 50 iterations of the same line about infrastructure to go back to where we were talking about originally. Um, but you would for a joke about, you know, I don't know, you do a joke about infrastructure, but a joke about, you know, whatever, some comment that Mitch McConnell had made or that Ted Cruz had made or about a self-deprecating joke for the president. And I think the fun thing about writing jokes and then now with the book, writing about writing about jokes is that you see little glimpses of these more important traits and and characteristics but with the stakes being a little lower so i talk about um how with a joke president obama could zero in on the most important thing and kind of block out distractions i think that's an important element of his presidency it's one of the reasons uh that he accomplished a lot of the things he did accomplish um what's an example joke uh we were talking about i was talking about doing a taping where um, he would he was reading through stuff and he kept emphasizing like the second best word in the j- joke to emphasize. Do you know what I mean? Like the em- just the emphasis was a little off, so the jokes didn't really land. And then he did it again, and it was like he'd been practicing for a week. 
And it was pretty remarkable to watch that. So, you know, not so much that he was perfect from the, the first time, but the fact that it took him a lot less time to go from being sort of okay to being extremely good. Is that because he was so uh, message-driven? Driven? No, I think so it's- he understood the I, deeper meaning? No, I think it's just, I think he had a very good sense, an instinct, and, and um, maybe that doesn't do it justice. I think an instinct and a, and a habit of identifying the important thing. And realizing that that was often his job, was was picking out the important piece of information. So that was true in a detailed policy memo too. But that would be less fun to write about. Um, and you know, and then some of the jokes we did, kind of had not political implications, but sort of were foreshadowing in a way. In a, that only looking back, I think about. So in 2014, President Obama did a joke about how obsessed Republicans had become with Vladimir Putin. And I think that was the first time he talked about that in public. It was certainly one of the more memorable times that early he talked about it in public. And Trump didn't even make the list at the time because there were so many other Republicans obsessed with Putin. But we look back at it now and, you know, there's some serious truth to that joke. And so there were things you were allowed to do when you're writing jokes for a president that the normal sort of standards of politics prevent you from doing the rest of the time. So, so, uh, Two more, two more kind of questions, and then we'll we'll finish this off. Get you to tarry down. Yeah, that's right. Um, that, are we just going to have no context for that for 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 listeners? <laughs> no context. Yeah, no context. I just yeah, it's the it's yeah, it's what the kids say these days. Got to get to tarry town. Okay. <laughs> um, one thing that's commonly said about Obama is okay, he was a great uh, speech giver, uh, maybe the best, and was he able to execute as much as he was able to uh, be so great at speech giving? And what's your opinion on that? I think that... And obviously execution involves a much broader world. Yeah. But it was, was his talent in speech giving driving more than it should have in terms of his political career? No, I think it's, um, you know, obviously he was very good at one thing. And I think he was also independent, or not independently, but not entirely relatedly good at another thing, but to some extent you have to look at those things in isolation. That was not a very, um, uh, that was not a very well-worded way to say it. So I'm going to try this again. What I mean, my question wasn't very well. (laughs) What I mean is I think if you look at what president Obama accomplished, I think he accomplished a remarkable amount. It doesn't mean that he accomplished everything he set out to, which would be a silly standard to judge any president by, but particularly a president living through a moment when Washington was really decaying around us. I mean, institutions that were supposed to be prioritizing the good of the country stopped doing that. And that was a serious, I mean, you know, when in 2008, when President Obama started running, nobody said, well, there will be an economic crisis. You're going to have a Supreme Court that opens the floodgates to dark money and politics and completely upends our political system. Um, You know, it was a sort of a a coincidence or a stroke of bad luck that we got beat so bad in 2010 in a year when gerrymandering was going to take place. And so now that locks in congressional gains for Republicans until probably 2020, you know, maybe 2018. Anyway, so all of which is to say, um, I think within that context, particularly, and even more broadly, just in general, there are a lot of people whose lives are better off. Some people who are only alive today because Barack Obama was president. And I did try to talk about that a little in the epilogue. I didn't think I was the right person to say, was Obama a good president or not? Because I'm biased. I think he was a good president, but like, duh, of course I do. Um, 
I do think it's worth, you know, I, I remember going to the airport for year after year after year around the holidays and I would see troops coming home. And I didn't work in foreign policy, but I got to be some tiny part of an administration that made decisions where those troops were spending Christmas with their families. Um, and that seemed like a no-brainer, but now, you know, this week, Trump says he's going to decertify a, a nuclear agreement with Iran. He's continuing to escalate things with North Korea. Uh, it turns out that winding down wars as opposed to starting them up takes real discipline and, and political courage. And so I think that um, the fact that President Obama was a good speaker shouldn't be – it seems strange to say does, does the sort of actions live up to the speeches. Um, I think that the more important question is did he accomplish things as president? In addition, some of them were speeches, but did he have other accomplishments? And I think the answer is clearly yes. I mean he had really sizable accomplishments, um, which I think we're realizing sooner than we might have otherwise because Trump is so hell-bent on rolling them back that we realize how much – you know, all this stuff where everyone's like, this is terrible news. The reason it's terrible news is because they were big accomplishments. And I think we'll, they'll be more enduring than um, Trump hopes they will. But we're realizing just how large the scope of those accomplishments is because we're realizing how much we're losing when Trump tries to go after them. And for you yourself, when, you know, you it's such a high stakes job, you're writing speeches for the most important person in the world. Uh, at what point were you like, oh my gosh, I just can't do it anymore. I don't think there was a point where I was like, I can't do it anymore, but I didn't want to reach that point. So I left at the beginning of 2016 and I didn't want to become the kind of person who said, you know, I'm indispensable to the president. Like I, I the country was going to be fine without me in the white house. And I didn't want to pretend that it wouldn't. And I knew the people who would be sort of applying for my job, or at least I knew many of them and I knew they would be great at it. So, um, I didn't feel bad in that sense. And I, um, you know, I, I kind of I hit this point where the frustrating things about my job, which you know everybody has things that are that annoy you about your job, they were they were seeming more they were looming larger, and the things I loved about my job seemed to be fading into the background. My job wasn't changing, but I just been there so long that you start to lose sight of some of the specialness. And I'm glad I left before I did uh, lose sight of of how special it was. I think I left. You know, if I'd stayed. An extra year, maybe I would have felt a little burned out. As it was, I think I left before that happened. And so now you're at Funny or Die. Are you uh, having fun? I am having fun. You know, it's interesting because I sort of, Funny or Die originally was a job that was like sort of political, but not really. And now comedy is so much more political than it would have been if Hillary was president. And so we're kind of right back in it. But I think that's important. I, I'm not. Uh, I think it's important to be in it right now. Well, where can people find you at Funny or Die? What, what should we watch? Um, you know, I, well, the nice thing is we're putting stuff on just that's being produced and distributed by Funny or Die in general. So it's not like uh, we have a specific sort of channel to watch. But if you look at Funny or Die, we're doing lots of cool political stuff with our team in LA. Um, we're doing stuff for organizations in DC. So you'll, you'll find it. Um, it's not that hard to stumble across if you're, checking out what Funny or Die is doing. And so much of the comedy world today is about all the stuff that's going on in the world. You know, it, there, that intersection is happening more and more. So, David Litt, I just want to, I, I actually think this is, uh, first off, a lot of great information, a lot more information on just the, the history of the administration, your background, uh, the book's excellently written. It's really funny. It's self-deprecating. It's so interesting, all the little subtleties that none of us realized during the, the White House years under Obama. 
Book's called Thanks, Obama, My Hopey, Changey White House Years by David Litt, a speechwriter's memoir. Uh, I love the fact that you got Judd Apatow, my all-time hero, as the blurb on the cover. Oh, yeah. That was... you, you also got uh, some ex-podcast guests on the back here, including um, uh, Adam Grant, uh, one of my favorite people. And you have you have uh, uh, some good blurbs from other, other great guys, ranging from David Axelrod to John Mulaney. So you have... Comedians and speechwriters, <laughs> which <laughs> again seems, shows yeah. the importance. I think the importance is not the fact that important things should be funny, but that humor often is a way to express the truth. I think and, that's right. And it's a way to help people remember. It's like an evolutionary way to help people re- remember. Yeah. So thanks for joining us on, on the podcast, and I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. This was fun. Yeah. All is right. It, so what's, what's, what's the funniest thing? Just tell me, what's the funniest thing you wrote that the president said that you were happy he said. Oh man, there were. I mean, there were. The thing I always go back to is he told a joke where he was like, "Republicans all agree they have to do a better job reaching out to minorities." Call me self-centered, but I could think of one minority they could start with, <laughs> and I, I love that joke just because it also, you know, it. I don't know if it's the funniest thing that I wrote for him. It doesn't sound that funny when I say it, but it got at this. It got at a truth about politics that we probably couldn't have expressed otherwise. So That's really that funny, was fun. Yeah. Anyway, thank Thanks. you for having me to Terrytown. Next time on the James Altucher Show. You always hear these stories, and I've never personally experienced it, where you start doing something just for your own pleasure, of course, and then it's like you turn away and you turn back, and suddenly it's this huge thing. Like, that's got to be an exciting feeling. I originally thought I'll make some jokes on this blog. I sent a link to one friend of mine saying, check this out, and apparently he passed it around to other people. That's how it started going. 